0: C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. While a man was meandering down the street, he passed a bookstore and paused and peered into the window, and there was a volume that caught his eye. It was entitled, How to Hug. Well, being of a romantic nature, he entered the bookstore to purchase that volume. Only to his dismay he discovered that it was actually the third volume in a set of encyclopedias and volume three was from "how" to Hug. (laughs) Have you ever bought a book on love to discover that it was not the real thing? I don't know how many girls have bought the book called Marriage thinking it was the real thing thinking that he loved her, only to discover that he loved all right, but it wasn't her, it was himself. Or how many people have attended a church thinking they were going to find a loving community only to find an encyclopedia on theology? I suppose we've all experienced thinking we found the volume on love only to discover that it wasn't the real thing. So let me ask, what is love? What is true love? Frankly, there are a lot of mushy, gushy, sentimental substitutes floating around for love. As Dr. McGee once said, I'm tired of a sloppy agape. All right, we've all been had on the phony, then what is the real? What is love? In order to answer that question, I'd like to invite your attention to Romans chapter 12. I would dare venture to say that as much as any passage in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12 defines and describes real love. Let's begin reading at verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another. With brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation, continuing steadfast in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirst, give him a drink. Or in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The subject of this passage is love. That subject is introduced in verse 9, and it is the subject all the way through the rest of the chapter. As I understand these verses, Verse 9 gives us what I'm going to call a definition of love. Then, in verses 10 to 13, he applies that definition to fellow believers. Then, beginning in verse 14 and going to the end of the chapter, he applies that definition of love to our fellow man. Now, frankly... This is another of those full passages, and in one message, we cannot possibly cover it all. So what I'm going to do today is begin by defining love as it's given to us in verse 9, and we're going to discuss the first application of that, namely, love toward your fellow believer. That'll take us through verse 13. In the next study, we'll pick up at verse 14 and go through verse 21, but I want you to understand, the whole passage is discussing true love. So, let's begin by asking, what is it? And then we will see how Paul specifically applies it, at least, to fellow believers. The definition itself is given in verse 9, where he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Hence, my title, Of true love he is saying that you should love genuinely sincerely truly and that it should be without any hypocrisy the word translated hypocrisy means pretense so the love should be true the true blue kind of love not any kind of counterfeit or sham or bogus It should be without hypocrisy. I think the best way I could communicate that is to illustrate it. I once heard of a man who wrote a poem every day for 20 years to his wife. That marriage ended in a divorce court in London. And the judge asked, why did you write your wife a love poem every day if you didn't love her? And this mild, meek man replied, I was afraid of what she would do to me if I didn't. Now, that's loving with pretense. That's loving with hypocrisy. Paul says, don't practice sham love, practice true love. All right? What is true love? Verse 9 comes as close to giving a definition of any verse I know of in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13 is generally called the love chapter, and it is. But as everyone admits who examines that chapter... That chapter is more a description of love, especially applied to the exercise of spiritual gifts, than it is a definition of love. This comes very close to a definition. Here is what he says. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, actually, in the Greek text, these are not three different sentences in verse 9. It all runs together, which says, Love, without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. So this is all one thought, as it is written by the Apostle Paul in the Greek text. I want us to examine this carefully. He says we are to abhor. That word means hate. Or Actually, it means to be horrified. He says cling. Now that word means to glue to or to... Cling to or to be cemented to furthermore he says we are to hate or abhor or be horrified at what is evil now the word translated evil could be translated evil uh, that's the general meaning of the word but this word is also capable of being translated something like hurt uh, that's its more specific Definition. It's talking about injuring a person in some way. So what he is saying is you are to practice true love that is abhorrent at the idea that you would hurt somebody. In verse 9 he says you are to cling to that which is good. And while good is a perfectly good translation of that word, it's the general translation. The more specific or particular translation is something like kind, it means to be benevolent or to help. Now, if you take the general meaning of these words, then you would translate something like, hate what is evil, be glued to or cemented to that which is good. But if you take the more specific meaning, then this verse could be translated something like this, you are to hate or abhor or be horrified at hurting somebody and you are to be cemented and glued to that which helps. Now, frankly, I think the latter translation is superior, and I'm going to suggest that what this verse is teaching is simply this. True love hates to hurt, and true love is hungry to help. Write that down. That's as good a definition of love as I think I could give you. From all that I know about what the New Testament says concerning love, that captures the spirit of what God is trying to get us to do. Let me repeat it. True love hates to hurt, and it is hungry to do good. Later, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now there, it is stated in a verse, which is Romans 13.10, what I am suggesting for Romans 12.9, at least part of what I'm suggesting. Love works no ill toward its neighbor. Love hates, is horrified at the concept or even the idea of hurting. Rather, love hungers to do good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul writes that love suffers long and is kind. There's the second part of the definition that I'm suggesting for Romans It is kind, it is benevolent, it seeks to do what is good for someone else. And as we all know, there is a Greek word, agape, that is translated love. The very meaning of which is that you seek to do what is best for the other person. So based on Romans 13.10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the very meaning of agape itself is I am confident that this captures the definition of love. Let me repeat it one more time. True love hates to hurt and it hungers to help. That's the definition given to us in verse 9. Beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul applies that definition. First, the fellow believers in verses 10 to 13 and then to fellow men in verses 14 to 21. For our study today, what I want us to do is look at how the Apostle Paul applies this concept of love to just fellow believers. As I understand, verses 10 to 13, he is basically telling us three ways that you can apply this to other fellow Christians. The first is in verse 10, where he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another, with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. The first way that you can apply this concept of love is to prefer one another. That's the essence of what he's saying in verse 10. Only there is clustered around that a number of other things. Phrases that need to be explained and understood. In preferring others, we're to do this by being kindly affectionate toward one another. And we are to do it with brotherly love. Now, in order for me to explain those first couple of phrases in verse 10, I need to pause for a second and I need to explain something else. And then I will come back to this verse. And what I need to explain is this. In the ancient Koine Greek language, there are four words for love. I'm sure many of you have heard this many times. The highest form of love is agape. The meaning of that word is that you do what is best for the other person. You seek their highest good. The second word for love in the Greek, ancient Greek language was phileo now that word unlike the first has an emotional element in it the first word is an act of the will it's a choice the second means to be fond or affectionate even it was used of friendships the third word is storge that was used of family affections it was restricted to the love that exists Within a family. And finally, there is the word eros, which you know, from which we get our Greek or English word, erotic, and it focuses on the physical side of love. Now, as been has been often pointed out, two of these words appear in the New Testament. A form of the third word appears. And the fourth word never appears in the New Testament. Now in this passage, the first two words appear and a form of the third word appears. Fascinating. Look at verse 9 where he says, Let love, that's agape. You choose to do what is best for the other person. Seek their highest good. In verse 10 he says, Be kindly affectionate toward one another. That's the Greek word That in verse 9, it is telling us we are to make choices. We are to choose to do what is best for the object loved. It's an act of the will. Verse 10 includes the emotion. There is to be a fondness and an affection even, an affectionate feeling toward these believers. And then he says, with brotherly love, and it is a form of a third word, storge, which is used of family love. Now, what is the point of all of that? And the point of all of that is simply this. Putting all of this together, he is saying, that believers are to have the same sincere tenderness toward other believers as they have toward a near and dear relative that he uses storge, or at least the form of it in verse 10 that it is brotherly love he uses the word for kindly affectionate so that the concept is that all believers are members of a family and we are to have that family affection for one another and that family concern for one another we are to have that tenderness toward every believer that we would have toward a member of our own immediate family whom was near and dear to us. Now, all of that builds up to the statement in verse 10 where he says, in honor, giving preference to one another. In other words, the concept is We're members of the same family. And because we are members of the same family, then I will honor you and prefer you over me. Because we're members of the same family, I love you. And I will do what is best for you and do it joyfully and cheerfully. And I will honor you and give preferential treatment to you. So, the principle in verse 9, is that love hates to hurt, it's hungry to help, and the first specific is that we are to prefer one another. Because we are members of the same family, we are to give honor to the other and not, by implication, seek honor for ourselves. Let me illustrate in 1826 and there was a man named Turner who was a rather successful artist he was particularly known for painting landscapes that included bright colors one of his more famous paintings was put on display and when they arranged the paintings it was put between two other paintings by Sir Thomas Lawrence. When Lawrence saw that Turner's paintings was right in the middle of two of his, he was immediately dismayed because his were of a more pastel and that bright painting of Turner's immediately got your attention. When the doors were opened to the art museum, they all filed They were rather surprised to discover that this painting of Turner's was very uncharacteristic of him. Instead of being bright and brilliant, it was covered over in a dull brown. And when they all began to complain, Turner simply said, Don't worry, I I just did some touch-up with some lamp back. Uh, lamp black back after after it's all over it'll wash off it's just that Lawrence was so despondent I just wanted to tone it down now that is the picture of what Paul is painting here that Turner preferred Lawrence he considered him a brother and so he even dishonored his own painting to honor his brother you really want to love, don't always seek the place of honor for yourself, but in honor prefer someone else. Now, at this point in the passage, things get real interesting. They almost get a little complicated. Um, Look at verse 11 not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Now, it isn't as immediately obvious in reading the English text as it is the Greek text. But what happens in these next two verses is that there are two sets of triplets. One set is in verse 11. A second set is in verse 12. And these are further elaborating on the concept of preferring one another. Now, as I say, that's not immediately obvious, but uh, as you look at the Greek text and as you consider what is really being said, you will readily see that that is exactly what is going on. Let's consider the verses, and I'll show you what I mean. Verse 11 says, Not lagging in diligence fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now you see, if you stop at the end of verse 10, you might get the idea that I have to prefer other people. So I do nothing. Since I am going to prefer my brother, I will let him do it all. I will take a back seat and do nothing. Now, Paul is saying you are in honor to prefer another person above yourself, but that doesn't mean that you don't do anything. As a matter of fact, he specifically says you are to prefer others, and all the while you are not to lag in diligence, that you are to be just as diligent as ever in working. doesn't mean that you don't do anything. And furthermore, you are to be fervent in spirit, so you're to be zealous and enthusiastic as you go about diligently working. You can do all of that and still prefer others at the same time. Perhaps the key to it all is the last phrase in verse 11, which says, serving the Lord. Matter of fact, the word translated serving in verse 11 is the Greek word slave. If your concept is, I am a slave of the Lord, then all of this will begin to fit and even make sense. That is, I am to honor my brother. I am to prefer him. But at the same time, I am to be diligent and fervent because I know I am serving the Lord. Let me put it all like this. If your attitude is really to serve the Lord, And one of the things you would obviously be concerned about are his children. And so it would be very natural for you to prefer one of his children knowing that you are serving him. And so it really doesn't matter how you serve or what you do or the place you get. I am diligent, I am fervent because my service is unto the Lord. So I think verse 11 is given to counter any kind of an attitude that just because you're preferring another, you wouldn't sit and do nothing. And believe me, there are many who sit and do nothing. Matter of fact, one insurance company issued an article entitled Sinatitis and they said that there is a deadly malady from which many americans are rapidly dying between the neck and the waistline it deteriorates the heart, the lungs, the kidneys and the liver and results from sitting at home, riding in an automobile and engaging in the same practice in their daily work they sit and they are dying from the practice may I suggest that that disease is an epidemic proportions in the church, that we interpret preferring one another as let George do it, whoever he is. I've always wanted to pastor a church filled with men named George. Wouldn't that be a delight? So Paul says, you are to, in honor, prefer one another. But that doesn't mean sit. It means be diligent and be fervent in the process. I have never been in a church, and I've been in plenty of them. Hundreds, literally. I've never been in a church of any size that had too many workers. I've been in dozens of churches. That we're constantly pleading for people to volunteer for everything from the nursery all the way to doing something with elderly people. Don't sit while you're preferring others. There's another qualification on preferring others, and that's given to us in verse twelve. He says, rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation continuing steadfastly in prayer I think you need to pick out i think it's in unmistakable what paul is doing he's given us two sets of couplets and in the first he talks about serving the lord and in the second he ends with continuing steadfastly in prayer and those are the two key concepts that'll motivate you to preferring one another in the meantime you are to rejoice in hope. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? How do you rejoice in hope? I think this may be a key to serving the Lord and continuing steadfastly in prayer. You see, hope in the Bible, New Testament especially, always looks to the future. And that's true in the book of Romans as well. That our Hope, actually, the word means expectation. Our expectation is in the future. That I'm not looking for uh, what I can get now. I'm certainly not being conformed or pressed into the mold of this world, to use Paul's phrase earlier in this chapter. I'm really setting my sights on something else so that my hope is not in the present. It is in the future. Amen? Okay. Now, what I'm rejoicing in is not that I win the medals now, because the race isn't over for me. What I'm rejoicing in is that one day I'm going to stand before Him and He's going to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, if that is your perspective, certain things will follow. For example, next phrase you will be patient in tribulation. And the word patient here literally means you will endure. And the word tribulation is particularly interesting. It means pressure and stress. I think that would be the modern translation of it. So that if your expectation and your hope is in the future, then what you are about is rejoicing now and enduring even the Affliction, the tribulation, the pressure, the stress that's going on now. Because what you're living for is not the present, it's the future. And therefore, you can continue steadfastly in prayer. So, this passage is telling us that if your mental attitudes are right, if you are doing the right thing for the right reason, then it's no problem to do what he set out to talk about in the first place which is the point he's making in verse nine and that is preferring one another it is as you are doing what is in verses eleven and twelve that you will be able to prefer one another it is as you fix your sights on serving the lord verse eleven That you have your expectation in the future and standing before him and being rewarded by him. Verse 12. That you can endure the tribulation of the present and continue to pray for others. And prefer them in honor in the meantime. Of course, what you're about is serving yourself. Getting the place of honor now. Now you're really serving you and not the Lord then your hope and expectation is going to be on what you can get in the present you're going to have a hard time enduring tribulation and you're not going to be the least bit interested in preferring other people so I want to repeat the point of this passage is that we are to practice true law and the first Example Paul gives of it is preferring one another. And that can only be done as our mental attitudes are right. I once discovered a little story that beautifully illustrates what I think is here. It goes like this. Dr. James Franklin was traveling by train across the continent when a black porter asked him, Say, boss, is you a preacher? Yes. How did you guess? Uh, I just saw the Bible lying next to you on the seat. I thought probably you were. You know, I planned on becoming a preacher myself. Why did you give it up? Asked Dr. Franklin. Well, you see, I've got this younger brother. And when I told him I wanted to be a preacher, he looked longingly at me and told me, that this was also the great desire of his heart well sir we talked it over and I decided that he should go ahead and go to college while I worked on the railroad to pay his way through and he finally became a preacher yes sir, in Africa perhaps you've heard of him they call him Bishop Scott Bishop Scott said Dr. Franklin in amazement why he is said to be the first black man the Methodist Episcopal Church ever advanced to the office of bishop and that he's doing a great work among his people some years later this article went on to say Dr. Franklin had the privilege of meeting Bishop Scott shaking his hand he said do you have a relative that's a porter yes said Dr. Scott and with a tear rolling down his cheek he said he's my brother may God bless him I owe everything to him. That's exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. That for a family member you would prefer them because you understand you are serving the Lord he will reward you accordingly when you stand before him. Well That's number one. I said there were three ways you could practice this principle of love. Have no fear. Paul doesn't develop the other two quite as extensively as he does the first. Look at your Bible at verse 13, where the other two are found. He says in verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. The way this passage is structured there are three ways we love one another the first is in verse 10 in honor giving preference to one another that's number one secondly we distribute to the needs of the saints and thirdly we are given to hospitality so let me just mention very quickly these other two secondly we're to distribute to the needs of the saints the word distribute literally means to share in the ancient world Many of the Christians were poor. And so, one act of love was giving, distributing, sharing with those who had physical needs. Paul spent a great portion of his ministry traveling around the Roman world, collecting money for the poor saints at Jerusalem. And to give to that was an act of love. You see, love hates to hurt or see hurt. It abhors that which is evil or harmful. It clings, it's cemented to that which is good and kind and benevolent. So anytime any Christian is acting in love, true love, he will do that which is good. So preferring others and presenting necessities to the saints are two of the ways you can practice the principle of love. The third way you can love is given in verse 13 when Paul says given the hospitality the Greek word hospitality literally means a lover of strangers. Now it's obvious that this is an application of love it's bound up in the very word hospitality it means to love strangers in the ancient world the inns, the motels, we would say, were rather sad. Uh, in the first place, they were physically dirty, but more importantly, they were spiritually and morally filthy. And they were um, uh, flea bags, as we would say. As a matter of fact, one ancient author uh, wrote that he was traveling with a companion and they said, Well, which inn shall we stay at tonight? The other replied, the one in which there are the fewest fleas. Well, That's how bad there were. So Christians often practiced hospitality. They often opened their homes to others so that um, uh, they wouldn't have to endure that. May I ask you for what do you use your home? Do you use it to entertain or do you use it for hospitality or do you use it solely as your castle where you can shut the door and escape from everyone and everything else well some use it solely for selfish purposes others use it to entertain but their entertainment is only an extension of their selfishness to really use your home in a loving way is to open it use it for people to come in To either use it for the Lord, use it for hospitality, as we would say, for entertainment in the sense of putting them up for the night or feeding them. That's love. It wants to use even my house in order to help other people. Karen Maines, in her book, Open Heart, Open Home, says it eloquently when she writes, Entertaining says, I want to impress you with my home. My clever decorating, my cooking. Hospitality, seeking to minister, says, This home is a gift from my master. I use it as he desires. Hospitality aims to serve. Entertaining puts things before people. As soon as I get the house finished, the living room decorated, my house cleaning done, then I will start inviting people. Hospitality puts people first. No furniture? Oh, well we'll eat on the floor the decorating may never get done you come anyway the house is a mess but your friends come home with us entertaining subtly declares this home is mine an expression of my personality look please and admire hospitality whispers what is mine is yours Well said, Karen. Well said. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said, Faith deals with invisibles, but God hates love, which is invisible. And another Puritan wrote, Affection without action is like Rachel, beautiful but barren. So if you really love, one of the expressions of that will be A lover of strangers. The grace of hospitality. Well, this isn't an exhaustive treatment of true love. There's much more. This is just some of the ways you can love fellow believers. But what I want you to understand is not just the specifics, but the principle. And the principle, which comes out of verse 9, is this. Love true love hates to hurt, and hungers to help. And that help comes in the form of in honor preferring one another and distributing some of your money to the needy and opening your home to use it for hospitality. What I want you to do is capture the essence of this and then practice it. That among fellow believers, we do everything we can to help, to promote, and not to hurt. Let me illustrate by telling you another story. Years ago, there were two men who both aspired to be artists. Artists. One was a fellow named Dura. He and his buddy figured out that they both couldn't afford to go to art school. So they concocted this idea that they would draw straws, and the one who won would go to art school, and the other would work at manual labor to support him while he finished. And then, when he finished, uh, he would uh, start painting, and through the profit, the uh, that he made off of his paintings, the other would then go through art school. Dora, won. He was uh, the one that had the privilege of going to art school first, and his friend went to work. Well, it wasn't long before uh, Dora finished art school, and he commenced to paint. And as planned, uh, he was able to finish and uh, paint sell his paintings and make money so it was time for his friend to go to art school and he enrolled it was then that they discovered that he had worked so hard so long with his hands that they were now not able to hold the brush they were gnarled and and he had damaged them so he realized he could never paint but he was a believer. He did not get bitter. He realized that what he had done was as unto the Lord, just as this passage is talking about. As a matter of fact, one day, he was kneeling beside his bed, and he had his hands clasped together as if to pray. I had him lifted slightly above his head and was praying. And Dura passed the bedroom door and heard him praying for his friend Dura, that his paintings would be very, very successful. Dura was overwhelmed by the sight, but he captured a picture, and he immediately went to his canvas and began to paint. You've seen the painting. It's called The Praying Hands. That man captured the spirit of love he preferred someone else over himself with the right attitude let's pray father we cannot discuss the subject of love without being reminded that you loved us sent your son to be the sacrifice for our sin we're grateful for that deeply grateful Now, my prayer is that we would all capture a bit of that spirit and learn to love like he loved, not seeking honor for ourselves, but preferring one another so that we may bring honor and glory to you and your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.